0: Hey folks, and welcome to DisasterCast, a podcast about scary things and how to stop them happening. My name is Drew Ray, and this is episode 44. Today's episode is brought to you by the DisasterCast patrons, Abraham Smith, Patrick Graydon, and John Rogers. Thank you, Abraham, Patrick, and John. Today's topic was suggested by Marty Brennis, aka Marty the Droid who suggested the Hinsdale Fire as a good example of creeping single-point failure. Apart from the Hinsdale Fire Investigation Report, the main source of this episode is a 2010 MSC thesis by John Beer called The True Significance of Common Cause Failures. Many safety techniques, in particular Failure Modes and Effects Analysis, FMEA, and Fault Tree Analysis, FTA, Rely on assumptions about independent events. Two events are independent if the probability of one doesn't depend on the occurrence of the other. For example, let's say you flip a fair coin and it comes up heads. What's the chance of that happening? Well, 50%. What's the probability of it coming up heads a second time? Also 50%. The two flips are independent. On the other hand, Take a guess at the likelihood of your dishwasher not working. Now switch on the washing machine, and none of the lights come on. What's the probability now that the dishwasher is also not working? The probability is increased, right? The dishwasher and the washing machine are in the same house, using the same power. They are not independent. The source of power is a common cause failure. Modern accidents are rarely, if ever the result of a single fault or failure. However, this doesn't mean that they need lots of independent things to go wrong either. Accident causes are a complex interweaving of states and events, and the notion of common cause failure can help us understand some of these relationships. A single point of failure is where just one thing needs to go wrong for an accident to happen. Engine failure on a single engine plane, or driver loss of control on an automobile are both single-point failures. Safety engineering tries to remove single-point failures by building in redundancy, multiple layers of protection or multiple ways to achieve the same safety function. The universe fights back by causing multiple failures at the same time. Sometimes redundancy can even defeat itself by increasing both complacency and complexity. Because we think we have multiple protection, we get complacent. Because we've made the system harder to understand, we've got little reason, though, to feel reassured. Ariane Flight 501 was an unmanned rocket launched by the European Space Agency. It reused some software code from Ariane 4. Part of this code wasn't even needed for Ariane 5, but it was considered easier and safer to leave it in than to try to excise it. A small error in this software caused the flight computer to crash. Fortunately, there was a backup flight computer. Unfortunately, it was running exactly the same software, and had crashed a split second before from exactly the same reason. That kind of common failure through common design happens all the time with redundancy. A different but related problem is cascade failure, also called the domino effect. Here the failure of one component directly hurts the reliability of another component. American Airlines Flight 191 was a DC-10 operating out of Chicago. During the takeoff roll, the parts of one of the engine pylons separated, and as the plane rotated into the air, the whole engine detached. It flew up and over the wing, and in the process damaged the hydraulic lines controlling the slats. Now the plane could handle loss of an engine and it could handle loss of the slats, but not both at the same time. It rolled over and crashed into a nearby field. It killed two people on the ground and everyone on board. This sort of thing can happen more subtly when failure of one component puts excess load onto another. Computer and power networks often fail as cascades when one failed node transfers excess load onto other nodes, which then fail transferring even more load onto other nodes. That's kind of how the World Trade Center buildings went down as well. Common cause failures are surprisingly hard to define precisely. They consist of multiple failures, sometimes directly causally related and sometimes triggered by a common event. In his MSc, Beers does something really clever to tease out the definition. He talks about common causes based on their effects rather than on their causes. A common cause effect, according to Beers, is when equipment or systems intended to be redundant by design have failed. This failure comes about when some event or events has, through some unforeseen relationship, flawed the assumed redundancy. That's not an exact quote, it's a summary, but the verbing of the noun floor is entirely Beers. I take no responsibility. Beers went on to review a small number of major historical accidents, and a large database of aircraft accidents, from the point of view of common cause failures. He found that very few accident reports actually talk about common causes directly, but that almost all major disasters have some common cause elements. Around 10% of aircraft accidents had a clearly identified common cause. Beers rightly considered this estimate to be conservative, since a large number of air accidents have pilot error as the listed cause, potentially concealing more subtle explanations. Many of the common cause failures involved assumed redundancy in design, that was defeated through human and organisational factors. Anyway, that's probably enough background to move on to this episode's accident. Hinsdale is a small town near Chicago. In 1988 it had around 18,000 residents, a small CBD, a couple of shopping precincts and a few office parks. It also contained a building called the Hinsdale Central Office which linked the telephones for a large part of the state of Illinois. On 8th of May 1988, at around 10 to 4 in the afternoon, the Hinsdale Central Office was empty. This was normal for a weekend. During the week, there'd be a few people in the building, and on weekends technicians would come in and out as needed to conduct emergency repairs. But modern telephone exchanges run themselves pretty well. The technician looking after the building on the weekend was actually in the town of Springfield, Illinois, at the Division Alarm Reporting Centre, or DARK. The DARK operator noticed a series of alarms on his panel. The fire alarm trouble alarm, the fire alarm, the air dryer alarm, and the battery discharge alarm. This may sound like a strange set of alarms to get together. Actually, what they meant was that the external power to Hinsdale Central Office had been interrupted, The diesel generators kicked in three minutes later and the alarm ceased. A few minutes after that, a new set of alarms lit up. Diesel failure, fire alarm trouble alarm, air dryer alarm, fire alarm. These meant that the external power had been restored, and the diesel generators had switched themselves off. Do you get the impression that this wasn't the world's most intuitive alarm panel? One minute later again, the alarms disappeared and the battery discharge alarm came on again. This meant that during the switchovers from mains power to generator and back again, a small amount of battery backup power had been used up. This battery discharge alarm could only be reset locally, by actually sending a technician to the Hinsdale office. After checking the alarm status a couple of times, the dark operator called his supervisor in yet another town called Wheaton. The supervisor then tried to contact a duty technician to go and reset the alarm. Meanwhile, though, the dark operator was receiving power failure signals from three other officers. Something a little strange was going on. Probably high winds or a storm disrupting power across a wider area. At 4.20, there was another fire alarm at Hinsdale. The dark operator had already asked for a technician to be sent, So instead of contacting the fire department straight away, he very understandably called his supervisor. A few minutes later, the supervisor got hold of a duty technician, and finally a technician was sent along to investigate both the original battery alarm and the new fire alarm. Just to be sure, the supervisor called the Hinsdale Fire Department, but when he tried to do so, the phone was out of order. He called up the second nearest fire department, That phone was out of order, too. Uh, Something a little strange is going on. Now, the dark technician's board was lighting up, with multiple severe problems at the Hinsdale Central Office, and the inter-office phone network was starting to experience call connection problems. At 4.52, the technician finally arrived at Hinsdale to find smoke coming out of the building. He picked up the phone to call the fire brigade, No dial tone. He went to the car and got the cell phone. No service. The technician flagged down a passing motorist and sent him off to the fire station. The motorist got a little confused and arrived at the police station instead. Fortunately, the police station was right next door to the fire station, so telephone communication wasn't required to get the message through. Let's step away from the sequence of events and have a look at the Hinsdale Central Office. Basically, it's a building filled with computers and patch panels. There are generators in the basement and offices upstairs. Mostly though, there are just lots and lots of cables. The cable trays within the centre contained a mix of insulated power cables and armoured communication cables. Insulation is just what it sounds like. It protects a current carrying wire from the outside world and vice versa. Armoured cables need a little bit more explanation. If electricity is being used to convey a signal, such as in a telephone circuit, it's sensitive to outside interference. This can be minimised by surrounding the signal wire with a cage of conducting material attached to the circuit ground. Any induced voltage is shorted straight to the ground, so it doesn't interfere with the signal. This sort of armour is the exact opposite of insulation. If the insulation on a power cable gets damaged, then the grounded armour can act like a small-scale lightning rod, encourage current to arc from the power cable to the signal cable. Contractors had been removing disused cable from the building on several recent occasions. Probably one of the power cables was damaged in this process, and small vibrations or changes in temperature caused it to move just close enough to one of the armoured cables to spark. The report explains what happened next clearer than I can. Through testing, it was possible to duplicate repeatedly a chain reaction of power cables shorting, arcing and overheating. Specifically, one or two power cables would short to a smaller cable causing it to overheat and burn. This fire would then cause the insulation breakdown through heating and melting of adjacent power cables which would fail and perpetuate the fire growth. Low voltage multiconductors and coaxial cables would readily ignite and add fuel to the fire. The high power densities and synergistic effect of cables can only be simulated through realistic large-scale fire tests. Large scale fire tests of non energized cables in trays would not provide relevant data. End quote. The fire spread rapidly across the tops of the cables exposed to air, and then the melting material dripped down through the layers of cables, spreading a slower burning fire. The chain reaction continued with live cables, stripped of insulation by the fire, arcing and igniting other cables. Even once the firefighters arrived, this kept happening. They would put out the fire with water or dry chemical extinguishers, and it would just start again. Eventually, they shut off the power and ripped out the fuses, but it still kept happening. Telephone exchanges are meant to keep operating during blackouts, so they're really quite defence in depth when it comes to power. They've got large banks of batteries known as Uninterruptible Power Supplies, or UPSs. So when the main power goes out, the diesel comes on, when the diesel goes out, there's still power. Of course, you can interrupt uninterruptible power supplies, but you need to know how. So the fire department tried to get in touch with the phone company to get instructions. But hey, no phone service. Eventually they did get instructions, and they disabled the power completely, which let them stop the chain reaction and finally put out the fire. The investigation report describes the accident as caused by the combination of a weak and damaged power cable system, along with a very reliable source of power. If the cables had been more robust, no problem. If the circuit had tripped at the first sign of trouble, no problem. The whole setup, though, was necessarily designed to keep the power on no matter what, so that the phones kept working, but once the fire had started, so that the fire kept going. And as a result of this highly reliable system, half a million people ended up without working telephones. The incident report is remarkable for the ambivalence of its recommendations. The alarms could have been direct wired to the fire department, but this would have resulted in more false alarms. The phone centre could have been more compartmentalised, but this would have made maintenance much harder. Different fire extinguishers could have been used, but they might not have worked any better. It should be easier to shut off all the power with maybe a single switch, but this would decrease the overall reliability of the phone system. Personnel could have been working on-site, but they wouldn't necessarily have noticed the fire any quicker than the alarm system. So all these recommendations come with caveats that they're not necessarily going to make the situation much better. The report is only definite about two items, The first is that telephones are central to managing emergency situations. If it's possible for the same thing that causes the emergency to also remove the telephones, that's a big problem. In this case, the thing that caused the emergency was the telephones, so some other means of communication was necessary. Heterogeneous networks, where there are a small number of busy hubs serving lots of smaller nodes, are particularly vulnerable if key locations are damaged, If you do the calculations, it turns out they're actually slightly more resilient to totally random damage than perfectly evenly distributed networks. But as this example showed, the damage isn't always random. A smaller hub wouldn't have had such a complicated layout or so much power backup. The second big observation from the report is that even something as apparently innocuous as cabling can be really dangerous and in ways that aren't expected. Although this particular failure mode was hard to anticipate, good worksite housekeeping could have helped. Tidy cables on neat trays, kept separate instead of tangled together, wouldn't have had the same chain reaction. Now, neat layout isn't always possible, particularly where space is at a premium. Just have a look at photos of the cables inside a jet aircraft sometime. But in this case there was plenty of room, just nothing in particular encouraging tidiness. Should we count Hinsdale as an accident involving common cause failure? From the point of view of the telephone network, the Hinsdale office was a single point of failure. Take out the office and you'll lose the whole local network. From the perspective of incident response, though, there were meant to be multiple layers of protection. There was meant to be redundancy. We had alarms, we had technicians, we had firefighters. But they all relied on a common resource, communication by telephone. Assumptions of redundancy undermined by unforeseen interaction. That's pretty much the definition of common cause failure. If you're the telephone company and your telephone exchange is on fire, who are you going to call? Well, it turns out no one, because none of the phones are working. That's it for this episode of Disastercast. If you have a topic or favourite accent you'd like me to cover, take a leaf from Abraham's book. He suggested a topic for the next episode, and the same day subscribed on www.patreon.com slash disastercast. For just a dollar an episode, he gets his own topic covered, linked copies of the source material, and early access to each episode. If enough people sign up, I'll start releasing some other safety material on every second week when there's no Disastercast episode. If you'd like to support the show, but not financially, please subscribe or leave a review on iTunes. Even if you don't listen, use it to listen to podcasts, it's still how other people find podcasts. Alternatively, you could visit disastercast.co.uk or recommend the show to your friends or talk about it on Facebook, LinkedIn or Twitter. Till next time, keep safe.